I just going to see how long we could sit here in silence before someone cracked there. Good, good morning. You guys doing okay? Everyone good? Good? You guys just would have sat there in silence. So that's okay. Glad you guys are here this morning. We are working through the book of 1 Samuel. If you've never been to church here before, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible, going through a book of the Bible I find very interesting. I find all of them very interesting, but some more than others. And um, 1 Samuel is pretty interesting. If you haven't been here, the whole book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament is based primarily around three individuals, three. But we're going to talk about a fourth very important individual a little bit today. We talked about him last week a little bit too. So the book primarily focuses on a prophet named Samuel, okay? Um, More than likely wrote this book of the Bible. That's why it's named after him. Focuses on the prophet Samuel. Focuses on the first king of the Jewish people, Saul. And then we focus on David. That's primarily the three main individuals that we focus on in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, what we're seeing, and this started a couple of weeks ago when Savut taught chapter 18, we have been seeing the buildup to this, but starting in about chapter 18, we see this, this huge divergence of two different roads. We're seeing the road of Saul, remember the first king. He has been rebellious, he has been selfish, he has done life his own way, has not listened to the word of God. And we're starting to see the road that he is going down. And the road, or at least the part of the road that we've been talking about, and we're gonna see it even more this week, is because of his rebellion, because of his disobedience to God, it has led him to, to chaos, and it's going to lead him to, to madness. That's the road we're seeing, okay? Now, on the flip side of that, we've been seeing David, the second king of the Jewish people, arguably one of the most important people in Jewish history and the Bible, very, very important. Um, we see the road that he goes down, and David is not a perfect man. Anyone that's read a lot about David, you know he's not perfect, but he is after God's heart. He's a man after God's heart. So we see the road of integrity that he goes down. And that's kind of from here to the end of 1 Samuel, that's really what we're seeing. Now, in the last couple of chapters, 19 and and, and a lot in chapter 20, we're introduced to kind of a supporting character, if you will, a guy named Jonathan, who is David's best friend and happens to be Saul's son. So that makes the the relationship a little bit complicated, and we're going to see that today. But if you haven't been here, here's here's where we're at. Saul hates David, and in chapter 19 tries multiple times to send agents to to go get David to kill him. David eludes these different things mainly because God steps in and kind of takes over these agents. They prophesy. If you don't know what that means, you can go back and watch last week's sermon. And then all of a sudden, Saul goes out by himself, and he goes, okay, I'm going to take care of it. And Saul goes out to kill David. God gets a hold of him. Saul ends up lying on the ground naked all day and all night, prophesying in front of Samuel, and he is left in utter shame and disgrace and disorder. And this is so far the cost of his rebellion. We're going to see more of that as we go through. In my opinion, 1 Samuel is really the rise and fall of Saul. That's what it's mainly about. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about uh, some some big, lofty, heavy things. Because I know in December, right? That's what you guys want to talk about in church. Big, lofty, heavy life things. Um, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about honor. We're going to talk about integrity. Talk about love, faithfulness, and a word that I don't think that uh, the Western world talks about enough. We're going to talk about this word legacy. What it means to leave something behind. The, in, in essence, the ripple effect that you and I have in this life. And we live in a very myopic, that uh, means you can only see things close to you, a very myopic culture. And we don't think about the long-term. We don't think about the, the, the long-term effect of our choices and what our life means. So, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, okay? Glad you guys are here this morning. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything is in there. Everything will be on the, uh, the big screen behind me. If you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament, the ninth book of the Old Testament, And if you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes, and we should be in good shape, right? How's the weather outside? Oh, it's cold. I don't like that. Um, Last night, I was on my last slide, uh, in the last point of my last slide, at the 6 o'clock service, and everyone's phone went off for the tornado warning. And at first, I was a little offended. I'm like, oh, you guys leave your phones on while I'm teaching? But then I learned that it does that regardless if it's on or off, so... 
All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we love you. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you, God, for, for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you, God, that people take uh, time out of their busy schedule. And um, December is hectic, God, and, and a little chaotic sometimes. So, Lord, thank you for this place where we can come. We can slow down a minute. We can focus on you, God. We can, we can hopefully learn a little bit more about you. During this time, God, I just pray that you bless us. Bless this church. And we pray not just for our church. We pray for every church in our city. Pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities, Lord. And, and we pray that even in, in just some small way, that we can be a blessing to you today, God. And that we can honor you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to read a little bit, uh, and we'll go back, and we'll break it down, okay? I'm going to pick up chapter 20, and um, we'll break it into a couple of different parts here. David fled from Nyot and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, no, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This, this can't be true. But David said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown Bethlehem for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says, good, your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know that he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? Okay, so here's what's going on. At the end of chapter 19, we said Saul has, has basically passed out naked in the street. He's there all day, all night. He is left in shame. He is left in disgrace in front of the prophet Samuel. And while this is going on, David takes this opportunity to get out of town, right? He, he takes off. And so what we're seeing here is David is scared. We're seeing the guy that went up against an almost 10-foot-tall giant now show some fear. Now, what do we learn from that? We learn that even the best of the giant killers still gets afraid. We learn that even the strongest people in our life reach a point of desperation at times. The question is this. The question is not, will we reach a point of desperation? The question is, to where will we run in those times of desperation? And we need to make sure that we run to God, right? That we run to Christ. And that this is what David does. He runs to God. He runs to a godly friend. And so Jonathan, David's best friend, Saul's son, David goes up to Jonathan and he goes, did I do something? Is this, is this my fault? He, sell, he, he somehow felt that maybe he had still sinned somehow against Saul. And he wanted to tell Jonathan the truth. Now, Jonathan didn't know Saul's intent to kill David. Saul had tried to kill David earlier and John made him swear an oath to God. So Jonathan's like, you know, my dad's done with all that. He didn't know any better. But David sensed Saul's motive was to kill him. So the thing to know about that is David was full of the Holy Spirit. It says this multiple times in the book of 1 Samuel, he was full of God's Spirit. And when one is full of God's Spirit, I believe it is impossible to be full of the Spirit of God without possessing the gift of wisdom. So David had wisdom. Along with wisdom, I believe we have discernment. The old King James Version calls it the discerning of spirits. So David had a supernatural ability to know the motives, to kind of sense that something was wrong and that he was in danger, okay? So he tells Jonathan, I am just a step away from death. So though Jonathan was not aware of Saul's intent, even though Jonathan didn't know everything that was going on, David still trusted Jonathan because Jonathan was a man of integrity, and David even tells Jonathan, the reason you don't know about it is because your dad knows that we're really good friends 
and that you would grieve if, if I was dead. So Jonathan hears David out and he goes, okay, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Now, do you notice how quickly he jumped into this? And what we learn from that is true brothers and sisters of Christ, right? True Christian friends don't take the time to count the cost before jumping in to help you. Isn't that good? Right? It's impressive, right? I wrote that. I wrote it right there. No, but it's true. Real Christian brothers and sisters, they don't sit there and go, well, that'll really convenience me. Let me see if I can get you on my count. They just dive in. If it's someone close to them and they need help, they do it. So David wanted to make sure that Saul had malicious intent. So they devised a plan. He and Jonathan devised a plan. David would hide out in a field during the new moon festival. They did that every single month during the new moon. He would hide out in the field and Jonathan would tell Saul that David was missing because he was visiting his hometown, Bethlehem. Now, if Saul was like, oh, okay, that's fine, they would know that Saul was not being malicious. But if Saul gets angry, then that will be a clear sign that Saul intends to kill David. And David reaffirms with Jonathan. He basically says, remember, we have a covenant. We've made a pact before God uh, to watch out for each other. And then David says to Jonathan, if for some reason this goes down and I have to die, he says, I want to die at your hand, Jonathan. I don't want to die at your father's hand. Basically, David was saying, I want to die at the hand of a righteous person, not an, not an unrighteous person like your father. And so that was the request he gives. And this is Jonathan's response. Jonathan says, no, if I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, May the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so that you can live safe, leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with your father or my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this incident began and stay beside the rock, Ezel. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. Then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, because, the Lord, because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there's no problem. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter that you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. Okay, so Jonathan dominates this chapter. Now, now look, there are, there are some major characters in the Bible. Again, I said this earlier, David would be top two or three main characters and the entire word of God. So we read about these main characters in the Bible and we oftentimes neglect that there are these, we'll call them supporting characters underneath them that, that are there to push these people up and show them their potential. Jonathan is one of these people. Jonathan is spoken about and his character is spoken about so much in this chapter because from this we learn that Jonathan was instrumental in David becoming David. It was Jonathan that came up with the plan. It was Jonathan 
that saw the greatness in David. If you go back and even read, he says, David, don't forget me. Even when God eliminates all your enemies, don't forget my household. What he's saying is, when God makes you the most successful, most powerful man on earth, don't forget my family. Don't forget, he saw something in David that David probably didn't even see in himself. We, we, we talked about this last week, but it is so important because we don't think about it as much as we should. Who we spend our time with matters. It matters. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you get inside an echo chamber and a social enclave and no, no, you know, never hang out with anyone differently than you. How boring would life be if you only communicated with people who think and act just like you? It's not the way we're supposed to be, right? We are to have people in our life that vote differently than us and think differently than us and believe differently than us because we have to have someone to pour truth into. We have to have people that, that we are investing in. We need those people in our life. But as I said last week, we need that, that three or four, right? Jesus had his inner three. He had his 12, but he had his inner three. We need those people to sharpen us, to see something in us, to pick us up when we're down, to, to encourage us. Because if the Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals, the opposite is also true, that good company inspires, that it makes us better. This is why Solomon wrote that iron sharpens iron. You need some iron in your life, right? Like, like metaphorically. So you need that in your life. So notice that John and David, I love this. Notice they didn't just come up with a plan. Notice that they went over the plan. Jonathan says, all right, let's go out to the countryside. See that rock over there? Hide behind that rock. I'm going to shoot these arrows. They run through the plan and they run through it until they're comfortable with it. And then Jonathan says, okay, let, let's, let's do this. Now, this is very important. Why is this very important? We see, because the Bible says that God is a God of order. Therefore, the people of God should be people of order. What does that mean? That means that God expects his people to do things to the best of their abilities. Nowhere in the Bible is apathy and laziness and sloppiness condoned. Nowhere in the Bible. That we are to do things to the best of our ability. That doesn't mean that we're good at everything. It doesn't mean that we're always the smartest or the fastest or whatever. But we should be the hardest working. We should be the ones who care about the details. We should be the ones that, that, that kind of set the pace at our work and with our family and, and just out in society that we are to do things to the best of our abilities. And one of those kind of like triggering words amongst Christians is work. Whenever you say like work in church, you're like, oh, wait a second. You say, you're saying we have to do work? Corey, I know the Bible. I know what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. It says that we are saved by grace through faith. There's nothing I can do, right? That's verses eight and nine. Did you read verse 10? It says that we are saved for good works that we have been appointed to do. That's what it says in verse 10. So, so James says it this way, that, that works without, or I'm sorry, that faith without any works is not real faith at all. James says, you can tell me about your faith, but I will show you my faith by what I do. There are too many professing Christians who hide behind grace as a means to be lazy. Well, I'm just praying that God will, God will help me out financially. Listen, prayer is great. You know what else is great for your finances? Working. Also great for your finances, right? Putting in some overtime, doing some hard work. Do you know that in Genesis 1 and 2, a lot of people mistakenly say, well, we work because of the fall of mankind. Incorrect. You didn't read Genesis 1 and 2 close enough. It says in Genesis 1 and 2 that God didn't decide to create the heavens and the earth until he understood, not understood, but until he had concluded that he would make someone to work it. Work was always a part of what we were supposed to do. I believe there will be work in heaven that we are never done producing and doing things. And to, to be lazy, to be lackadaisical, to hide behind God's love and grace is a means of being apathetic or lazy or sloppy is not biblical and it is not God honoring. Jesus said his followers are the salt and the light. Do you know these lights run on something? It's called energy. It takes work to make the lights run. It takes work to illuminate a dark space. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to work. Salt is a, is a preservative, 
right? It does something. There is an action that it does to preserve the flavor of the food and the health of the food. So we are called to do good works as a display of God's grace and of salvation. And so at our jobs, we don't need to be known as the lazy people. We don't need to be known as the sloppy people. We don't need to be known as the ones who just kind of scrape by and do the bare minimum. That is not a good witness for who Jesus Christ is. And so these men, John and David said, okay, if we're gonna do a plan, we're gonna do it right. We're gonna do it the right way. They also make an oath. So before Jonathan leaves David in the field, he reminds him, the Lord is going to be a witness between us. This basically means that not only are they swearing to God, right, that they're gonna do the right thing, they're swearing to each other. We're going to treat each other correctly. Their friendship was rooted in the principles of God. And the healthiest relationships in our life will always be rooted in the word of God and in the principles of God. That's our marriages, how we raise our children, how we treat our family, how we treat our neighbor, how we treat our coworker, right? How we respect and love people. It all goes back to being rooted in the principles of God, okay? Let's get back to our buddy Saul. Here's where it gets fun. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat facing him and Abner, he was the head of the army, took his place beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He's unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty and Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So, now, if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That is why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. We have an equivalent to that nowadays. Um, but just so you, just so you know, that's, that's kind of what Saul is saying here. <laughs> Disappointed that you guys even know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> Don't I know that you're siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back. Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon. For he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. Just had a spear thrown at him. And Jonathan is not upset about that. He's upset because his father hates David. Interesting. Shows the character of Jonathan. Okay. So as Saul noticed David missing from the new moon festival, the first day he goes, well, David's, David's a righteous person. He's, a, he's a, a, a God-fearing man. So he's not here because he must be ceremonially unclean. If you're curious about that, I, I left you the scripture reference up there. But he thought it was because, well, David's not gonna just not show up. Now, the second day that David didn't show up, Saul knew something was going on. And he asked Jonathan, this is little things. He goes, where is Jesse's son? He hates David so much that he won't even say his name. Where is Jesse's son? And as Saul starts to realize that his son is helping David elude him, his years of unaddressed sin, please hear me this morning, his years of unrepented sin leads him to do something utterly insane. He tries to murder his son at a public dinner. Tries to murder his own son. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. Listen, as time passes for us as individuals, 
if we have sin in our heart, right? If there is unrepentant sin in our heart, we, 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 we choose not to bring this to God. We choose not to ask for forgiveness of this. As more and more time goes, what happens is sin eventually deteriorates our mind, deteriorates how we think. Where do you get that from, Corey? Romans chapter one. That if we, if we live in unrepentant sin, the old King James version says that God gives us to a reprobate mind. My translation says he gives us over to a worthless mind. And do you know what happens? When we have a worthless mind because of unaddressed sin, it says this in Romans chapter one, the people exchange the truth for a lie. Are you not seeing this in your society? Not only as individuals, but when a people group, when a group of people have unaddressed sin, cultural sin, when we have unaddressed and unrepented for cultural sin, we as a people, right, a people group, start thinking culturally things that are absolutely insane. Not even against the Bible, we're now thinking things that are against 9,000 years of biology and chemistry and rational thought. I mean, we are thinking crazy stuff because the, the, the more time that we go not addressing our evil, the more our mind goes and we start to defy logic and we start throwing spears at even the people that we love, right? And that's what is happening to Saul right here. Look at this. As Saul is talking to Jonathan, you can see the progression of aggression. Look at this. Seeing if any of this looks like, like things you've seen out in society. First, Saul attacks Jonathan personally. You guys ever see these people get into debates and they're, they're supposed to be intellectual debates and someone says something that the other person doesn't like and instead of responding with an intellectual answer, they just call them names? It's the first thing. Secondly, he started to guilt him. He started to use guilt tactics. Thirdly, he used fear tactics. If you don't do this, you're gonna lose your kingdom, right? If you don't vote for this person, it's all gonna fall apart. If you don't do this, no more democracy, no more, no more, we're all gonna be locked up in like little metal cages and no, fear tactics, right? To get you to do certain things. And then the last thing is when the first three don't work, we just hurt people. We physically abuse them. Unrepentant sin leads to an escalation of aggression. It starts to ramp up and get more and more. I think the anti-Semitism right now in the world right now is a fantastic example of this irrational, illogical, it's name calling, right? It's guilt tripping and eventually it's, it's fists being thrown, right? It's, it's people being physically hurt in the street. We see these kinds of things all the time. So after Saul threw a spear at Jonathan, Jonathan got up, not even because he was upset about the fact that he almost got killed. He was upset. It says he was grieved because of his father's behavior. What was happening is Jonathan, a righteous man, was appalled. He was repulsed by the actions of an unrighteous man. He was repulsed by sin. Why? Because sin destroys people. And this is another fantastic point. I'm not saying any of us, but maybe all of us. We are so, we can be so desensitized by all the evil around us, right? We're, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. We live in a hyper-violent culture. We live in a hyper-materialistic culture. And sometimes it's around us so much that we, 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 we get desensitized and we're not, we're not disturbed by sin as much as we should be. But here's the thing. Sin tears apart marriages. Sin gets people raped. Sin gets people taken advantage of. Sin drives people into bankruptcy. Sin does a lot of evil stuff, right? So it should bother us and repulse us because it hurts people. Not only that, sin is what will eternally separate us from God. And that should really bother us. It should bother us maybe a lot more than it, than it currently does in Western Christianity. But sin should be repulsive. We should see certain things and go, oh, I mean, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want to sit at this table, right? I don't want to take part in that kind of behavior. And it should repulse us and we should want to get up from the table. We should want to get away from that, okay? All right? Because we should be worried about our long-term impact. Last part. In the morning, 
Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, run and find the arrows that I'm shooting. And as the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow, an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called out to him and said, the arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned it to his master. The servant didn't know anything, only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone Ezel. He fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed, uh, kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. So after Jonathan got, got a very clear answer about his dad's intentions, right? The next morning he went out just like the plan. This is the plan unfolding. Brought a servant, shot some arrows, the whole nine yards. And the way it all unfolded told David that now at this point, from here to the, to the end of 1 Samuel, David is a fugitive. He's on the run. So after Jonathan had the servant bring back the arrows, he, he gives the equipment, the bow and arrows, to the servant. He says, all right, take these back to town. And that gives Jonathan and David an opportunity to, to essentially say their last goodbyes. They're going to say goodbye to each other. If I'm not mistaken, they will see each other one more time before Jonathan dies. But this is kind of their, their, their last chance to, to say goodbye to each other. So it says that David came out from the rock, bowed down three times to Jonathan. Why? Because Jonathan was a prince. Jonathan was official royalty. And out of honor and respect, he bowed down to him three times. It says they got up, they kissed each other and wept. If you can imagine, this has been taken way out of context. Uh, people take this out of context because we live in a society that does not value history. We do not value study. We do not value the understanding of other cultures. We say we do, but in the United States, we think everyone thinks like us and they always have. And, and that's, that's not true. It's not even true within our present time right now. So, so my wife that was, she sang up here this weekend. My wife's Italian. She's Northern Italian. I remember right after we got married, um, we went up to Elmira, New York for a, a, a family reunion. It was the D'Onofrio's. My wife is a D'Onofrio. The Dilibertos and the Lasitos and me. And we sat, we sat at this family reunion. And the first person I met was Uncle Jack, Jack Diliberto. And uh, I got a big kiss, right? Grabbed me on the face, kissed me on the cheek. Welcome to the family, you know? Said some things in Italian that I don't know what they were. And we all sat down and we played bingo and ate cannolis, right? But that's what we did at, at my, my family's very Italian reunion. Um, in a Scottish household from the Midwest, uh, we didn't kiss each other, the guys, right? It was a cultural thing. There was nothing beyond that, except that was a cultural thing to show affection. Um, if you ever go to Uganda, we take a lot of trips to Uganda. I've been to Uganda five or six times. In Uganda, grown men, it's very common for grown men to hold hands when they walk around town. Um, that's not extremely common in uh, Tennessee. So just different cultures where this happens. The problem is this, when you read stuff like this, and you can even Google this, a lot of people think that there was a hidden gay relationship between David and Jonathan. That's absolutely not true. And if you know anything about David, David very much liked the ladies, if you go on and continue to read the Bible. But what it is saying here, what we're talking about is, is we have a tendency to, to do what's called presentism. If you ever heard that term before, presentism is we take cultural norms of our present and we try to insert them in cultures in the past. And that doesn't work. This was 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world. And our thought process now was not the same thought process then. This is dangerous. It's also dangerous to try to revise history. Anyone ever read 1984? You all should. 
You should buy that. You can still get it on Amazon, I think. I don't think it's banned yet. But you should read 1984. It's about revisionist history. It's about a protagonist whose full-time job is to go back and rewrite the newspapers to make it look more favorable for their current culture. We still do this today. We are rewriting history all the time. And one of the main reasons why we rewrite history is because there are atrocities in, in, in the past, and we just don't feel comfortable addressing the atrocities. The problem with not addressing history and the atrocities of history is when we are ignorant to history and the atrocity of histories and to previous cultures, we are destined to repeat the same mistakes. This is why history is important. This is why accurate history is important. So when we read the Bible, it will do us some good to know a little bit of history, a little bit of culture, and not, not everything is viewed through the lens of the United States in 2023. Okay, so we have to go back and do a little bit of study with that. So Jonathan assured David that their friendship was rooted in God and that both of their, their, their family's legacies would be secure. The third commandment, when you talk about the 10 commandments, the third commandment is to not use the Lord's name in vain, God's name in vain. It doesn't say you cannot use God's name. It says that we do not use it haphazardly. We do not use it in vain. These two men swore an oath to God, right? But it was a sincere oath. It was a faithful oath. And we learned that all of our relationships that are built on the principles of God are healthy relationships. And it lasts for generations. That's what we see in Jonathan and in David. So listen, at this point, at this point, Jonathan and David had no idea how things were going to shake down. They didn't know. They didn't know what would be their future. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They didn't know if they were going to get killed. They didn't know if their family members were going to get killed. They had no idea. But you know what they did know? If we put our trust in God, however things shake down, ultimately it's going to be okay. And Jonathan having a relationship with David cost him a lot, a lot. But what Jonathan understood is this. Even though it may cost us a lot in the temporary, Jonathan understood the long-term benefits of honor, of integrity, of love, and of faithfulness, okay? And that's what we're gonna talk about for a minute. And these things are going to connect. The first thing we have to talk about is love. It's a word that is thrown around a lot, so much so, and, and again, so casually, that I think we've lost all perspective of what it really is. But when we truly start to understand that God loves us, when we start to understand a little bit that God would send his only son to die for our sin, right? Even when we were still living in that sin, when we start to understand a little bit about the cross and about the grace and the nature and character of God, when we, when we learn a little bit about that, it is not hard for us to love God. At least I don't think it is. When you learn that someone has done that much for you, it's not difficult to say, oh, I love you, thank you. It is a little bit more challenging though when it comes to loving other people. Am I the only awful person in this room? Easy to love God, sometimes not as easy to, to, to love all of you, right? And, and people out in the world, it's, it's sometimes a little bit more difficult. But here's the thing, honor, integrity, and faithfulness they stem from the root of love, not only a love of God, but also from a love of other people. We cannot be honorable, we cannot have integrity, we cannot be faithful unless we love God and we love others. When Jesus was approached by the religious people, they said, Jesus, Rabbi, what, what is the most important command? And he says, well, that's easy, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he adds something to it. He could have stopped right there, but he added something. He said, and there's a second one that is similar to the first one. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Isn't it interesting? It says earlier in this chapter that Jonathan loved David like himself. And Jesus said, that's the second command and it cannot be divorced from the first command. They are intrinsically connected. So we have to learn to love God and people. From that love breathes faithfulness. That means that, that, that we are committed. Jesus even says that his followers are to be people that their yes is yes and their no is a no. And on a big scale, 
If someone comes up to me and asks, Corey, are you a Christian? That means, do you follow the commands of Christ? Do you follow the leading of Christ? Jesus says in the gospel of John that if you love me, you will keep my commands. So in order to be a Christian, by Jesus's definition, I have to keep the commands of the word of God. So if someone says, are you a Christian? I say, yes. Jesus says, let your yes be a yes. If you're saying, yes, you follow me, you better be following me. Let your yes be a yes, be faithful. Also, if we do not have the bandwidth to do something, the intelligence to do something, the time to do something, don't commit to things that you cannot follow through on. Say no, I can't do it. Some of you need to learn to say no, seriously. Hey, can you do this for me? Can you pray for me? Listen, if you don't have any intention of ever praying for that person, say, I'm busy, I'll probably forget. Just be honest, be faithful. Let your yes be yes, let your no be a no. So faithfulness is more than just loyalty though. Faithfulness is a commitment to the truth. But listen, it is impossible to be committed to the truth if we don't pick up the word of God and learn what the truth is. Man, I love you guys. You need to read the Bible. Just in little bits. Just start off in the gospel of Matthew and just start reading, right? And then you can go backwards. But, but we need to do that. It's impossible to be committed to something that we don't even know what it is. Are we faithful? From love breeds faithfulness. Faithfulness breeds honor. And you and I live in a society right now that does not value honor. We do not value respect. Do you wanna know why we don't value those things? Because in our society, there is nothing bigger than the individual. I'm the biggest thing. I don't know if you guys knew this. this the, the, my whole life is a movie and you're just secondary characters in it. But that's how we're trained to think right now, is it not? That's why these girls will stop in the middle of a busy crosswalk and do a dance and like stop traffic and everything else for their stupid 30 second TikTok because everyone needs to pause while I get some affirmation. That's why we do that. So we don't care about honor. We don't care about respect. We don't care about, and the Bible says to outdo each other with these things, to outdo each other with honor. So in a, in a culture, in a society that does not value honor and respect because we really don't value anyone as much as we value ourselves, it is imperative that the Christian lives differently. And we live differently by honoring God, by respecting God. And as Proverbs 9 says, to have a fear of God. It says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Corey, that just means like a respect kind of. It also means that we have a, a genuine fear that if we live on the, uh, the opposition of the creator of all things, that that's not going to end well for us. Well, that's just some of that Old Testament, hardcore God stuff. God's always the same. Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew, don't be afraid of those that can take your body. Be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. He was referring to himself. A proper wisdom comes from a proper fear of God. And when we have a proper fear and respect and honor of God, not only are we saved and enriched, it gives us the ability to honor other people, to love other people, to respect other people. So because when we have a relationship with God and we're full of the spirit of God, some gifts of the spirit of God are wisdom and discernment. And that gives us the ability to have healthier relationships when we can use wisdom and we can discern things. So love breeds faithfulness, faithfulness breeds honor, honor breeds integrity. When we have these three things, we are people of integrity. Integrity is an integral part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We cannot be a follower of Jesus without being people of integrity. Now, now integrity by definition, integrity by definition means to be honest and to be moral. The problem with the, the word moral, though, is you and I live in a culture of moral relativism, which means what is right to you may not be right to me, right? We, we say really asinine, stupid things like your truth and my truth. There's no your truth and my truth. There's just truth, correct? You guys know this, right? Well, that works for you. It doesn't work for me. There, there are absolute universal truths. And I'll, share, I'll show you where you find those uh, right here. So there's an important word. Integrity is not just honesty and morality. Integrity is, is honesty and biblical morality. That our morals come from God, not ourselves. So we have to ask ourselves, are we honest and moral people? 
The only way we can be moral people is if we know the standard of morality. Do we strive to uphold the principles of God? Well, what are they? The book tells you. And then we need to also ask ourselves because the Bible says, Peter says, that we are to be people with a good reputation. That means at our job, does the person in the cubicle next to you feel comfortable enough to talk to you about struggles in their life because they know you're not going to be the one to gossip? You're not going to be the one to tell everyone in the office about it. You're not going to put harsh judgment on them or condescend them and talk bad. Do we have a good reputation? Are we known as the people who work hard? Are we known as the people? Listen, if you own a business and you put a little ichthus or a cross anywhere on it, boy, you better work your butt off. And you better have a great attitude all the time. But that's not just if you own a business with a cross on it or a little ichthus, right? But if we are Christians anywhere in the marketplace, the Bible says we work as if unto the Lord. Well, Corey, I hate my job, hate my boss. You shouldn't hate your boss. But if you hate your job and strongly dislike your boss, know that you're ultimately, you're ultimately not working for your superior. You're working for the superior. God sees it. And we are to work as unto him. So what is our reputation? Are we honest people? Hardworking people? Do people see that in us, right? If they don't, they're not gonna wanna come to your church. They're not gonna wanna, ha they're, they're not gonna wanna have to do anything with your God if you're a lazy, unagreeable person. They're not gonna wanna have anything to do with your God. If that's their God, I don't want that God, right? So we need to be good examples. And all of that leads to a legacy. And I'm gonna tell you guys, a legacy isn't cheap. Legacy is hard. Obed Let's just be honest in this church this morning. Obedience to God is difficult sometimes. We have to lean on him to be faithful to him. It's tough, man. That's why we have grace and mercy. But it, it, it is tough, especially as the world gets more and more hedonistic, man. It's hard. It's hard to love others. It's hard to look out at humanity and go, we, you know, I just really love all these people. It's tough sometimes. But it is imperative that we leave a ripple effect. Listen, not for my name, not for your name. My goal in life and your goal in life should not be, I, I just want to make sure everyone thinks well of Corey. No, no, no. If people think well of Corey, I want them to know that it's by God's grace. So the legacy we're really leaving behind is the reputation of God working through his people. That's a big deal. So I'm going to ask you some big questions, okay? Big questions. But I want you to, listen, I want you to be thinking like this. We live in a shallow society. I don't want you to be shallow. God doesn't want you to be shallow. God wants us to be people who are thinking of bigger things, of depth. It's not about just instantaneous gratification, affirmation. There's something bigger, right? Something bigger. So, so I hope that we're thinking thoughts like this. What is my contribution to humanity? Well, you know, do I have to write a book? Do I have to start a church? Do I have to, you know, be an actor and win an Oscar? And then when I get the Oscar, say, oh, glory to God. You don't have to do all those things. What is the impact on the sphere of people that God has put around you right now? What are we doing? What is the impact? That what is our contribution? Listen, we as Christians are not engineered and made and saved by grace to just sit back and consume and do nothing. That's the world, man. The world's attitude is consumerism. We are to be contributors. What are we contributing? Are we salt and light? I said it earlier, Matthew chapter five, Jesus looks at his followers. The first time that God had spoken audibly to his people in 400 years, and the first thing that Jesus says to humanity is, you're the salt, you're the light, right? You are the thing that makes life worth living is what he's basically saying. Like that adds flavor to it. I know God is what makes life living, but he's saying you're the salt. You're the thing that adds flavor. You're the thing that, that preserves. You're the light. You're the thing that illuminates truth. And you're not to be hidden. You're to be where the whole city lights up. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. What, what is the fruit that we are producing? Listen, do people see out of you and I love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, here, here it comes, and self-control? Do they see that in us? 
If they don't see that in us, what will be the attraction to the God that we serve? I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself like this. You are the front door for people's salvation. You are. And so how we live our life matters. How we live our life matters. Whose kingdom are we focused on? My kingdom? Listen, every human kingdom that has ever existed will come to ruin. Most of them already have, and and it says in Revelation that everything will be toppled upon itself, right? Not one brick left uncovered. And then the last thing, are we striving to be people of depth? Depth, deeper things, deeper things. Are we thinking about the deeper things? Are we seeing what God is doing around us? Do we take the time, right, to look at the sky at night or walk through a field sometime or drive around with our kids or whatever the case may be? Are we thinking about the bigger things? Are we thinking, God, you have me here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. You have a mission for me, a purpose for me. Are we thinking big things like that? I want you to be thinking big things like that. God wants you to be thinking big things like that. What am I here to do? Who am I here to help? Who am I here to serve and to love and to show God to? That's how we're to live. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and and maybe you're not a believer or maybe you're a new believer um, and you guys have questions, Any questions you may have, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Mike. We're not afraid of questions. We love questions. So if you have any questions, Mike would be more than happy to talk with you. We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything you may need prayer for, they would love to pray with you. And then the last thing is, all the way around the room, wherever you see a lamp on a table and the majority of the pillars in the middle of the room, there is communion, that is, that is uh, bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take that. You can take that by yourself, with your family, with your friends, however you feel comfortable. Um, the only thing you have to consider before you do that, though, is you have to ask God to forgive you of any sin that may be in your heart, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done for us, God. We thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that you just make us people who, who are, are thinking beyond ourselves, that we're thinking, God, about the people around us. We're thinking about you. We're thinking about the impact we have, God, and, and how valuable our lives are. God, I pray that you keep your hand on us, protect us, Lord. Make us people of integrity, of faithfulness, God, of honor, of love. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God. We praise you. Keep your hand on everyone in this room till we meet again. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.